The scripture this morning is from Psalm chapter 78, verses 1 through 8. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds but would keep his commands. They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation, whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to your people. God, we um, acknowledge, we confess that the reality of your existence is the most basic, fundamental reality of our lives. And so we pray now that as we uh, give our attention to your word, that God, you would Uh, Pay attention to us, that you would make yourself present to us, that by your spirit you might be at work within us, that Christ might become more fully formed in us. Fill our hearts, our minds, and our hands uh, with the goodness of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This past week, uh, Monday, was Martin Luther King Day, and um, I, uh, because of that, um, read something uh, that Dr. King had said that I had never heard before um, in a sermon that he preached uh, maybe a year, year and a half before he died. Um, he was preaching in a church in, at, uh, in Atlanta, I think, and he was preaching on um, the passage of scripture in the Sermon on the Mount towards the end of Matthew chapter five, where Jesus tells his followers that we are to love our enemies. And in preaching that sermon, Dr. King told a story about he and his brother that had happened a couple years before, and he said that he and his brother were driving one night from Atlanta to Chattanooga, Tennessee. And they were on a country road, Um, It always surprises me whenever I'm in the South um, that everywhere you drive, it's like you're surrounded by trees on both sides and you can't see anything. You get no view and it was dimly lit and there's no street lights. And he said that um, cars coming towards them, you know, when you're out there in the middle of the in the middle of the country, you put on your high beams. And he said the drivers that night were very discourteous. 
He said they didn't dim their high beams. Hardly any driver that passed by dimmed his lights. And so he, he began to explain how he and his brother, his brother was driving, that they were getting increasingly frustrated that drivers coming towards them were being disrespectful. And Dr. King says, I remember very vividly my brother A.D. looked over and in a tone of anger, he said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along here and refuses to dim the lights, I'm going to fail to dim mine and pour them on in all their power. And Dr. King says, I looked at him right quick and said, oh, no, don't do that. There'd be too much light on this highway and it will end up in mutual destruction for all. Somebody's got to have some sense on this highway. Somebody has to dim the lights. And in the sermon a couple years later, after this incident, this is how he reflected on that moment. He said, if somebody doesn't have some sense to turn on the dim and beautiful and powerful lights of love in this world, the whole of our civilization will be plunged into the abyss of destruction. And we will all end up destroyed because nobody had any sense on the highway of history. Somewhere, somebody must have some sense. Men must see that force begets force. Hate begets hate. Toughness begets toughness. And it is all a, de a descending spiral, ultimately ending in the destruction for all and everybody. Somebody must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe, and you do that by love. Somebody's got to dim the lights. And that, I think, is a snapshot of what we're talking about in this series, Generations on Mission, when we're talking about what does it look like for one generation to the next to love one another as followers of Jesus. Dr. King is talking about the ethic of grace. Our world says repay people according to the way that they have treated you. And so if people flash their high beams at you, you flash your high beams at them. But the ethic of grace says somebody has to dim the light. Somebody has to stop the cycle of retribution. And God calls on his people, his church, us, to be the ones who dim the lights. We started this series last week called Generations on Mission where we're looking at a psalm and applying the... Um, kind of the light of the gospel through the prism of this psalm to each of the six living generations in our church. And uh, one of the things that I'm wanting to highlight for us is that our world's approach is sort of work hard, take what you can get, but God calls us to live an ethic of grace to acknowledge that each generation has received something from the generations that have come before us. And so our call is not to just simply store that up and enjoy it for ourselves, but to receive it and then to leverage it for the sake of those who are younger than us. So generationally, that means older generations don't just work hard and get to retirement and then coast and complain about how the younger kids these days are ruining the world. It means that younger generations receive what is passed down from older generations, and it means that older generations leverage what they have received to invest in those coming after them. Last week, we uh, began this series looking at the silent generation, those um, born before 1946, the oldest cohort of our congregation. And this morning, we're moving to the next generation, the baby boomers, 
The baby boomers were born between 1946 and 1964 and are currently 58 to 76 years old. The baby boomers are the generation born after World War II, where after two decades of um, depression and then a world war, um, Americans came home, uh, entered into a time of prosperity and had lots of babies. <laughs> uh, for 14 years, beginning in 1946, there were 14 successive years of rising birth rates in America. And uh, so this, this generation of baby boomers is the product. Um, a large generation. They're known as being a rebellious generation. Baby boomers protested the Vietnam War. They took part in civil disobedience during the civil rights movement, occupying college campuses and rioting at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968. They were the first generation to experience a substantial generation gap, a, a pronounced difference in um, attitudes and values and behavior from that of their parents. The culture wars that we talk so much about in our time really begin during the time of the baby boomers, um, adolescence. So they began as this sort of rebellious generation, but then in the 30s, the baby boomers uh, got careers and uh, embraced a life of comfort, which ultimately led to a life of materialism, and they moved to the suburbs. <laughs> In the 50s, they watched Leave It to Beaver and Father Knows Best. As adolescents, they listened to Elvis, the Beatles, Mick Jagger, and the Rolling Stones. They were shocked by the assassination of JFK. They boycotted the Vietnam War. And then they calmed down and joined the Reagan Revolution in the 80s. And so in many ways, the idealism of the 50s gives way to a countercultural rebellion in the 60s and then the embracing of kind of the man and the system in the 70s and 80s. Baby boomers are idealistic and principled. They're activists and resolute. And also, and these are words, not mine, but written by a member of this generation, they can be selfish, they can be overly opinionated, they can be overly driven by image. Until the millennials came along much, much later, the baby boomers were the largest generation in the history of the United States, the history of the world. They currently make up about 21% of the population of America. Four of the last five presidents uh, have been baby boomers. Actually, the current president is the only uh, of the last five that have not, was not a member of the uh, baby boomer generation. Since Bill Clinton, we've had baby boomer presidents. They have tremendous cultural power. They uh, serve in positions of leadership, sitting on boards, and this is shocking. I discovered this week that 20, baby boomers are 21% of the American population, but they control over 52% of America's wealth. So they hold tremendous power culturally and they hold tremendous power in the church, both formally and informally. Some estimate that 75% of the American church's attenders, volunteers, and givers are baby boomers. 75%. About a third of Trinity's congregation are baby boomers, the largest cohort in our congregation, a third. One out of three of us are baby boomers. 
Youth for Christ, YWAM, Campus Crusade, and dozens more parachurch ministries were all built by boomers uh, and helped many, many thousands, perhaps millions of baby boomers meet Jesus. The megachurch movement in the 80s uh, was pioneered by baby boomer pastors and led to hundreds of thousands of baby boomers who had perhaps grown up in um, uh, churches where the gospel was not central. And as they had children in, this, in the 80s, uh, began taking their children to church in warehouse churches with loud bands, and they met Jesus. The baby boomers, thousands of baby boomers, pioneered innovative ministry that led others to Christ. It's impossible to underestimate the impact that the baby boomers have had in American culture. And because of that, it's impossible to underestimate the impact that the aging of the baby boomer generation will have on this country in the next 30 years. And so what I want to do this morning is use Psalm 78 to highlight both the strengths and also the challenges that the baby boom generation presents us. And I want to talk about those challenges graciously. Um, I should maybe just say that my parents are baby boomers, so if I say anything that sounds uncharitable, you can just write it off as sort of unresolved teenage angst. (laughs) Uh, Because the impact of the baby boomers retiring and as much as they try to avoid the reality that they will eventually pass on, it will have an enormous impact on the church. Because of that, we're going to look at Psalm 78, uh, the second longest psalm. Uh, We're only going to look at the first eight verses. Nancy texted me yesterday and said, am I going to read all of Psalm 78? It's the second longest psalm. It's a big psalm for a big generation, but we're only, you know, mostly thinking about verses one through eight. Psalm 78 was written by Asaph, who was one of three Levites commissioned by King David to be in charge of the singing at the tabernacle. And it speaks of our need to remember the mighty acts of God and tell them to the generations coming after us. So there are three messages, three lessons from Psalm 78 that I want to highlight for baby boomers. And the first is this, that Psalm 78 tells us that we need to soften our hearts to hear the story of God's people. Soften your heart to hear the story of God's people. Uh, Verses 1 and 2, Asaph, God through Asaph says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. He's saying, listen to me. Hear my words. And the word hear, hear, uh, doesn't just mean like hear the sounds of my voice or something like that. It means like lean forward in your seat. It means pay attention to what I'm saying. It's like when I say to my kids, would you listen to me? And they're like, I heard what you said. I'm like, but you're not doing it. Listen (laughs) to me. Don't let the words go in one ear and out the other. Pay attention to what I'm asking, God is saying through Asaph. And what God tells us through Asaph is to hear his teaching. 
What are we listening to? It's, it's his teaching. What are we obeying? It's, it's God's teaching, which the word teaching in Hebrew is the word Torah. It's the law or it's God's instruction to his people. He's saying, lean forward in your chair and catch every word. Uh, Asaph is like, um, how many of us a couple weeks ago, that day when it rained like six inches, got these alerts on our phone. You know, it's like it just, no matter what you're doing, doesn't matter if your phone's on silent, it begins to blare. And a severe weather alert. You, you know, it's not the government just like, hey, FYI, it's raining outside. No, it's saying pay attention and do something about this. This could save not only your life, but your loved ones and your community. He's trying to get our attention. He's warning us against what it's so easy for us to do if we have been um, Christians, if we've been people who come to church regularly for any length of time, where we can just, because it's our habit, because it's our routine to wake up on a Sunday morning, roll into church, and we sit politely and we listen without much thought, without much intention that we might hear something that would cause us to behave differently. It's a call to soften our hearts and to pay attention. And then in verse 2, he tells us what the rest of the psalm is about, what we're supposed to listen to. And Asaph says he's going to tell us a parable. It's interesting that he uses the word parable. Uh, you know, Jesus taught in parables. And um, what is a parable? A parable is a story with a point to it. And um, there's more to it. Jesus actually, um, when, when Matthew um, in the New Testament describes Jesus teaching in parables, he references Psalm 78 verse 2 to explain why Jesus taught in parables. And there's more to it than exactly what I'm going to say here. But um, this is a story with a point to it. Psalm 78 is a 72-verse account of Israel's history. It's a long psalm. It's a dark psalm. It's not a particularly flattering story of God's people. It shows the ugliness of the Israelites. It shows their constant complaining. It shows how they respond to God's faithfulness with ingratitude. It uh, recounts how God's people rebel against the covenant promises of God. Now we're just looking at the first eight verses, which are really the introduction, uh, but the rest of the psalm is telling us the, the Israel's history. It's talking about, um, it begins with their leaving of Egypt, entering into the promised land up to the point of King David becoming the king. And basically the story is that God's people forget about God's kindness. And then God shows up and God uh, comes, uh, or God, God allows difficulty to enter into the life of his people. And they remember God and they repent and God shows mercy. And then once God shows mercy and God restores his covenant with his people, then we forget and we take God for granted. Verses 34 through 38 are a pretty good summary of the, the narrative of this whole psalm. It says this, when, when he, as God, when God killed them, when he, when he killed them, they sought him and they repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, the redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. 
He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. God's people have this relationship with God where he is kind to us. And we embrace his kindness in the moments when it suits us. And then as soon as things kind of steady out for a little bit, we forget him. Asaph is saying that this extended parable is meant to teach us a lesson. And it's about as relevant for us today as it was to the original hearers. So soften your hearts to hear the story of God's people. Okay, so what are we to listen to? Well, the second lesson that I think this psalm teaches us, verses 3 through 6, especially for baby boomers, is this. We must pass the baton to the coming generation. We must pass the baton to the coming generation. Verses 3 and 4. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. The story of God's glory and his might, the news of God's kindness and mercy, the gospel of his action to save his people. We have heard it from those who came before us, from our parents, And we must now tell it to those who come after us, to our children. He's talking about passing the baton from one generation to the next. And passing the baton uh, is a lot harder than it looks like. If you don't believe me, just watch the U.S. men's relay team in the Olympics. Uh, where the U.S. has some of the fastest runners on the planet and yet regularly struggles to win the men's relay. I remember running track, I ran distance in high school, and I would see the sprinters over there working on passing the baton. It's hard work. It's about more than the performance of a talented individual. It requires practice, requires coordination. In verse 3, Asaph moves from the first person singular, where he's talking for himself, and he begins to speak in the first person plural. He begins to say, we. While we have to individually hear and listen and respond to God, we must corporately apply these things. We must work together in concert. We must strategize. The faith journey is not a solo activity. The reality, I think, is that baby boomers as a generation are more inclined to think individualistically than they are to think corporately. And this psalm is telling us we can't simply say, well, I've done my part and now it's your turn. Asaph wants us to learn the vital importance of passing along our spiritual heritage to future generations. He says, we have heard these things from our fathers. The reason that we know them is because they have passed them along to us, and now we must not hide them from their children. Uh, He uses the word hide. He, He doesn't simply say, don't fail to tell your children about these things. He says that failing to tell your children about Um, the goodness of God is to hide it from them. The verb hide has a very specific meaning. It means to hold something back, to refuse to make something known. If you remember from um, the fall when we looked at the book of Joshua, there's this place where Achan has uh, stolen devoted things and God is angry with his people because of what Achan has done. And Joshua comes to Achan and says, tell me what you have done and hide nothing from me. The sense of hiding something, of holding something back, 
uh, is what Asaph is warning against. We might say it like this. Will you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? It's not just will you say what's true, it's will you say everything that is true. A crucial marker of a follower of Jesus is that we are people of the truth. We have to hear the truth and we have to be willing to hear the whole truth. We have to be willing to tell the whole truth. In um, the 90s in South Africa, I think I'm getting the timing right there, when apartheid came to an end and Nelson Mandela was elected uh, to lead South Africa, um, he set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and he asked a pastor, uh, Bishop Tutu, to lead the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And when they initially talked... Nelson Mandela said that he wanted to create a situation where those who had been the perpetrators of apartheid had to come and tell the whole truth. And Bishop Tutu said, but the ACN, or the ANC, the African National Congress, which was Nelson Mandela's party, Bishop Tutu insisted that the ANC also had to tell the truth. They also had to be willing, because they, they had um, committed atrocities during apartheid too. And though those perpetrating apartheid had sinned in greater and more profound ways, the whole truth was that atrocities had been committed by, bo- by both sides. And both sides must be told, if only for the pragmatic reason that one side would never be willing to hear uh, unless the whole truth was being told. And the reason I'm saying that is because baby boomers have vast power, cultural power in our country and in our church. And baby boomers have to be people who tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in our churches and in our communities. And the question is, will you use that power to tell the truth? Asaph says, we will not neglect to share with our children what we have learned. It's no accident that this psalm begins telling Israel's history, beginning with God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. You might have noticed that our liturgy uh, this morning kind of picked up on the theme of the exodus of God's people, God's bring, God bringing his people out of slavery in, in Egypt. It was the great story of redemption in the Old Testament. The cross is to the New Testament as the exodus is to the Old Testament. The events, the great act of God's redeeming of his people around which his people gather, which everything else uh, points us to. And you might remember that on the very night God led his people out of Egypt, their very night of deliverance, God gave Israel instruction to teach their children what God had done for them. The Passover uh, is an annual feast where God commands his people every year to hold the Passover feast and he tells them on that day, tell your sons and daughters, I do this because of what the Lord did for us when we came out of Egypt. Exodus 13, 8. 
In fact, the entire Passover was designed as an elaborate sort of training ritual. So what we see here is that God has a plan for the long-term discipleship of his people. One generation receiving the baton from their parents and grandparents and then passing the baton to their children and grandchildren. And let's be clear that Asaph is talking generationally, not biologically. He's not saying that uh, this only applies to you to, if you have biological children. It applies whether you have biological children or not. Someone discipled you in your faith, and now it's your turn to pass on to the coming generations what you have received from those who came before you. John Calvin, in his uh, commentary on this verse, he says this. He says, these things should be published from age to age without interruption so that being transmitted from father to child in each family, they might reach even to the last family of humanity. He's saying, if only there was one family left at the end of uh, human history, they should hear um, about the goodness of God, the mighty acts of God. Third lesson from this um, psalm. Verses six through eight, um, Asaph tells us that we are to prepare the generations for a life of faith. Baby boomers, you are to prepare the generations for a life of faith. In verses six through eight, we see a long range plan that God has for the future of the church and the church's mission that is laid out here for us. If you notice in these first eight verses, they specifically span five generations. In verses three and five, Asaph refers to our fathers. In verse five, he refers to us. In verse four, he talks about their children. In verse six, he talks about the children yet unborn. And then he refers again to their children. Uh, Verse 6, he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, that they in turn would tell their children. He's not just thinking about my fathers and my kids. He's talking about five generations. To disciple them requires both short-term and long-term planning. It requires true love for the coming generations and it requires a commitment to unselfishness on the part of those who presently have authority and power, those who presently sit in positions of leadership. Uh, you know, we hear this kind of language in our political discourse, don't we? You know, we're going to, I was reading this week, like we're going to come and do this whole debt ceiling crisis thing again. And one of the arguments that is always made uh, whenever this debate comes up, and it comes up uh, when we talk about climate change also, um, is what are we leaving for our children and grandchildren to grapple with? In the same way, it's imperative that those in leadership now prioritize the discipleship of Generation X and the Millennial Generation and Gen Z and Generation Alpha who is still being born. Our children's children are depending on you and they're depending on us. Psalm 78 is telling us if we will soften our hearts to the story of Scripture and commit ourselves to the joyful task discipleship, 
If we will fill our mouths with the mighty deeds of God, then we will embed and implant the true story of the world in the coming generation of Christians. It's more than just the next generation that he's talking about. He says, you will shape the coming generations, plural. Those you tell will tell others. And those who tell others will tell still others. God has designed discipleship to be like a, a wave that is generated by dropping a pebble you know, in a pond that ripples out for generations. If baby boomers want to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren uh, who, you know, 75, 100 years from now, come to church and worship Jesus on Sunday morning, it's imperative that they befriend and mentor and disciple younger generations now. Okay, we're going to see in the coming weeks that one of the challenges for younger generations is that we have to be willing to receive what older generations pass on to us. But baby boomers also have to be willing to pass on to us what they have received. Older generations help prepare younger generations for a life of faith. Psalm 78 tells us how as God's people, we are prone to forgetting God. We are prone to forgetting his kindness. We are prone to forgetting his mighty acts. We are prone to wander from him. And so the psalm follows the cycle of rebellion and redemption, of wandering from God, and then God coming and finding us and bringing us back to himself. But the psalm ends by talking about God sending his people a gift. And the final verses of the psalm talk about God sending to his people who have wandered from him and rebelled against him the gift of a king. Um, And King David finally... Uh, It says that God chooses him, and it emphasizes that God took King David out of very humble beginnings, very obscure origins, and made him king so that he would tenderly lead God's people. And the last verse in the psalm says this, with upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. God in his mercy gave his people a gift, a king who would be their shepherd. Now that was good news for Asaph. It was good news for his people. And yet even despite um, David being the great king of the Old Testament, we know that David was a failure in many ways. And we know that his son Solomon failed to prepare his children and the generations that followed him. And as a result, they fell into these same patterns and were eventually taken away into exile. And that's why ultimately God gives his people a better gift than King David. That God doesn't simply send someone, but actually comes to us himself. And just like David, Jesus emerges out of humble and obscure origins. With an upright heart, he lives a perfect life. With the heart of a true shepherd, he laments for his people. As he prepares to go to the cross, Jesus cries, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her her wings, and yet you were not willing. So you hear the heart of the good shepherd there wanting to gather God's people to himself. And then in the ultimate act of love, Jesus willingly goes to the cross 
sacrificing himself, taking our sin upon himself, being torn apart and dismembered for us so that we might remember him and look to him and trust in him and find forgiveness and find life in him. The writer of Hebrews uh, warns people who have heard the goodness of the gospel to not drift away, to not forget, to not neglect the greatest of all acts of God, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so as we think about boomers, we have to acknowledge how how blessed this generation is. And we also have to realize that to whom much has been given, much is required. So let me uh, take a few minutes to close by, by applying this psalm specifically to the boomers. Some of the saddest verses in this psalm are in verses 9 through 11. It says this, The warriors of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned their backs and fled on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his instructions. They forgot what he had done, the great wonders that he had shown them. What it's saying is in the the moments of action, they were there and they were poised and they were ready, but because they forgot God's faithfulness, they turned and failed to act. And so as we think about these verses, I think they leave uh, the baby boomer generation with a challenge and with an opportunity. And the challenge is this. These, these verses prepare, give us a challenge to prepare to pass the baton. Asaph has a vision here, not just for himself, but for five generations, for his children, for his grandchildren, and the generation that will come after them. Baby boomers need to adopt this vision and develop a strategy to pass the baton. As a generation, okay, let me just say this. As a generation, baby boomers are struggling to enter old age. So can we just acknowledge that in a hundred years, all of us are going to be gone. And baby boomers are going to be gone just a little bit before that. (laughs) We are all going to get old. Baby boomers are retiring later in life than any previous generation. Baby boomers don't like being called grandma and grandpa by their grandkids. You know, they want to be called Gigi and Goo Goo or something. (laughs) Don't call me grandfather, you know. Boomers have worked hard in their careers, and as they've become empty nesters and entered retirement, they have tended to adopt an attitude that says, I've put in my time, and now I get to enjoy it. And it's up to the next generation to build the church. And I want to plead with you that there's a better way, that there's a gospel way. Mark Sayers is an Australian pastor and um, sort of cultural observer And um, in a podcast uh, he released over the summer, uh, he talked about the coming boomer apocalypse, which sounds really dramatic. But if you think about the word apocalypse, I know we think that the word apocalypse means like a catastrophic end to the world. But really the word apocalypse means revealing. It, It means that the curtain is being pulled back and we're seeing the reality of what's really going on. And um, Mark Sayers says that Uh, This enormous generation, 76 million Americans that control over half of our money, 
that make up perhaps, you know, across the nation, 75% of the church's giving and serving. They're going to go, 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 and then eventually it's all just going to stop suddenly, and nobody is talking about this reality. Can you imagine if we woke up tomorrow? Uh, I said that a third of Trinity's congregation is baby boomers. I don't have any, I, I don't look at, I don't know who gives what to, uh, at this church. My hunch is that baby boomers give up a lot more, give a lot more than a third of Trinity's income. And if it were all simply stopped tomorrow, uh, it would reveal to us that we have not done a very good job of preparing for the future. We've got to listen to Asaph. We've got to have a vision for future generations. We can't just go and then abruptly lose this entire generation. We've got a plan for this transition. We've got a plan for this transition. The apocalypse means that something is being revealed. For boomers, it means that it's, what's being revealed is that it's time to figure out how to pass the baton. For younger generations, it's, it means that what's being revealed is it's time for us to receive the baton, to step into leadership roles, to prioritize our discipleship not as an optional add-on to an already great life, but as the foundation of who we are, that all of our life is built on the foundation of Christ. One of the challenges I think that baby boomers uh, face is, is a mindset that sort of says we're either going to be in the driver's seat or we're getting off the bus. And baby boomers are going to have to figure out in this next season of life how to ride in the passenger seat how to give direction, how to move out of the, ment the leadership roles but into the mentoring roles to not simply disappear. When I was a um, young pastor working for RUF, our denomination's campus ministry, um, one of the uh, aspects of our philosophy of ministry they taught us was the learning process, which is how Jesus taught people, which is teach, demonstrate, observe, evaluate, encourage. It's not do or do not. It's teach, demonstrate, observe, evaluate, encourage. It's time for baby boomers to enter into a teach, demonstrate, observe, evaluate, encourage sort of role. To take on the role of mentoring. You still have vast transactional power. You need to start investing in younger leaders. Not, not elbowing out younger generations and not disappearing from church to enjoy your golden years, but helping Gen X and millennials thrive as they step into the lead roles. Can you imagine the power that you have to encourage younger leaders to step into those roles, to say you're doing a good job? At the beginning, um, I talked about uh, the ministries that Boomers built, YWAM, Youth for Christ, Campus Crusade, and many, many more. And there's a reason, um, the, the reason that there is this challenge is because the baby boomers uh, knocked it out of the park. Like, did such an amazing job building innovative ministries that led thousands and hundreds and thousands and probably millions of people to Christ. But the question now is, who's coming after you? Who's going to pick up the baton? You were innovative in your time. You didn't necessarily follow the patterns that your parents and grandparents handed down to you. Now the challenge is to encourage younger generations to follow in your footsteps, to support them as they do so, and to not insist that it look exactly the way that it looked for you. 
to elevate, um, to not elevate your preferences over kingdom principles. And the challenge for younger generations is this, are we going to step into those roles? Are we going to receive what the boomers pass on to us? A potential crisis is also a huge opportunity. How do we plan for the future? So there's a challenge, but the last thing is this, there's an opportunity to bless. The question that I think the baby boomer generation needs to start thinking about is this, what will your legacy be? It's easy for baby boomers to complain about younger generations without realizing that the things you are complaining about are the product of your life. They are your legacy. What sort of legacy do you want to leave for your children, your grandchildren, and beyond? As your peers enter retirement and see it as a time to enjoy the wealth that they've acquired, you have tremendous gospel opportunity to bless future generations. If we've got, let's say, 20 or 30 years for this transition, the question we should be asking now is how do we build a legacy now to bless future generations? I mean, are there financial investments to be made now to ensure that there will be a gospel-centered church for your kids and your grandkids and those who will come after them? Future generations are going to grow up in a world that is very different than the world that baby boomers grew up in. It's going to be a world where there will be tremendous cultural pressure to compromise or abandon Christian faith. Can you prioritize your discipleship now? Can you invest in discipling Gen X and millennials? Baby boomers have been criticized by younger generations for being self-absorbed. Younger generations can look at baby boomers and write off their faith as Americana nostalgia. The thing that will convince them otherwise is not articulating loudly your views on gender and sexuality and politics and tattoos. The thing that will convince them otherwise is your willingness to sacrifice. As long as Christianity looks like a way to hang on to a past golden age, it will be far too easy for younger generations to write off the faith of the baby boomers as self-interest and self-serving. But your willingness to sacrifice your time to invest your wealth in the future of the church, to leverage what you have received and earned for future generation, that's what's going to raise eyebrows. Here's the reality, and I think it's easy to ignore. Baby boomers are the recipients of a tremendous legacy. Uh, this generation is so large, it's been so successful, that it's easy to think that you have done it yourself. But you haven't done it yourself. You were born at an ideal time in American history. You were born right after World War II in a time of peace and prosperity. All of your success is predicated on the sacrifice of the greatest generation that fought the war and then gave you birth and the silent generation that worked to build a stable world for you to grow up in. And that's a picture of the gospel. None of us has anything um, in, to boast of in the presence of God. It is all a gift. And now it's your turn to pass that legacy on to future generations. Asaph talks about five generations, but it's not five following him. He's talking about the generations that came before him. He's saying, we received this from our fathers. 
He doesn't want to be the generation where everything comes to a dead end, so he remembers those who came before, and he determines to pass on a legacy to those who will come after him. Baby boomers have this opportunity now. So in every generation, there is both an opportunity to embrace the story of God's faithfulness to his people, and every generation makes mistakes. And so baby boomers, what I want to say to you is you have the opportunity to embrace the story of God's faithfulness to you, but you also have an opportunity to model the goodness of the gospel by repenting for the mistakes that you have made. That is what shows future generations the beauty, the kindness, the majesty of God. The combination of embracing God's story as your own and also modeling a humble posture of repentance. So will you model God's kindness? Will you remember his kindness? Will you tell younger generations of God's mighty acts, the greatness of the gospel? Will you tell those who come after you of the love that Christ has displayed to you so that we might embrace it as our own? We're praying that you will say yes. So would you pray with me now? Oh God, we thank you for those who have come before us. We thank you for the baby boomers. God, it's so easy in the time that we're living in to uh, sort of point fingers at those who are older or complain about those who are younger. And yet, each generation has particular strengths and particular challenges. And we pray for uh, this generation that has been blessed mightily by you for a wave of faith uh, that they experienced in their 20s and 30s for the way that you have filled your church uh, with this generation. And we pray that they would continue to be faithful until until the end. And as they do so, that they would model for those who come after them the goodness of your gospel. Would you do that here at Trinity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.